Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is stand-up comedian Kyle Kinane. If you've been listening to Bullseye for a while, you might have heard him before. Kyle has been on several of our year-end stand-up comedy specials. We've also interviewed him, and I'm looking at my notes, three times now. Three times. Kyle might also sound familiar to you because for years he was the voice of Comedy Central. And let's face it, nobody says Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. quite like Kyle Kinane. Kyle's comedy is a special brand of self-deprecation. A lot of his jokes are about failing at life, sometimes pretty spectacularly, like the time he literally threw away some money, or the time he fell out of the shower, or when he almost died in a ramen shop. Very scary situations, but always very funny when Kyle talks about them. He released his fifth stand-up album, Trampoline in a Ditch, earlier this year. It's kind of a departure. A lot of the record deals with his life changing. He's older now. There are new social norms, Being a lovable failure maybe isn't quite as lovable as it used to be. And what else is on his mind? Well, he's in his 40s, so death. Let's listen. I'm 42 years old, and my name's Kyle. Okay, you know what that means, right? It means I'm on borrowed time. That's what that means. There's no such thing as an old Kyle. You're trying to think of one right now. You can't, because there isn't any. Nobody went to Grandpa Kyle's for Christmas this year. Doesn't work out that way. Kyle's died in her early 20s in free climbing accidents. The way God intended. That's how it works. Kyle Kinane, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to talk to you again, Kyle. You too, Jesse. How you doing, buddy? Well, I'm doing poorly, but this isn't my... <laughs> I almost said this isn't my show. Uh, it is my show. It's not It's not a show about me. It's a show about you, Kyle. Uh, maybe we want it to be about you. <laughs> Let's, uh, maybe we just flip it today. Let's talk about you, Kyle. I <laughs> okay. feel like I. this might be counterintuitive, to folks who don't know a lot of comics in real life. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the comics that I know, while they're missing stage time and the kind of controlled social interaction that comes with with being on stage and proving that you're worthwhile by forcing people to laugh, (laughs) I feel like a lot of comics I know are like doing that because they are introverts. Mm-hmm. and want to control their social circumstances and are perfectly fine staying at home and focusing on their hobbies yeah. while, <laughs> <laughs> while they're basically unemployed. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was a little worried. It was only recently where I kind of heard that definition of an introvert being someone who just, not that you dislike people, but you just get exhausted by social interaction. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't think that of me at 1 a.m. at a bar while I'm just bellowing and spitting from the top of a bar stool somewhere. But <laughs> I uh, 
Yeah, uh, outside of the uh, pressing circumstances of the world crumbling, I, I've been all right. I've been pretty good, really. <laughs> I haven't been. I've still, you know, it's still fun to write, uh, write comedy and write bits. I finally did a show a couple weeks ago, an outdoor show. And it was weird because I've just been writing material for six months. And it's where as a stand-up, you write it and you get to try it out that night or the next night to find out if you're at least on the right path of like, oh, yeah, this will develop into a funny story. But six months of just writing and then revealing that to people, uh, it felt like I got some sort of drastic plastic surgery or something where I'm like, oh, what do you think of these? And everybody's like, what? Wow, so that's what you thought was a good idea. <laughs> I, I, uh, I feel like I maybe what I've been writing more of are um, manifesto-inspired humorous <laughs> observations rather than jokes. <laughs> so uh, it was nice to get hip-checked a little bit. But yeah, I, I haven't uh, – there's been enough Zoom interactions to to keep me settled socially. I mean, there is a significant chunk – on this new record about your affinity for old men who love model trains. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, I'm I'll turn 40 soon and it is looking clearer and clearer to me why people especially 70-year-old men go in their basements to work on model train sets. I felt you so deeply on that. <laughs> I am envious of the people that are 80 years old and they're just the the spunky senior in their neighborhood, and they love going out to talk to everybody. I want to be that person. I know I'm not going to be that person. I'm going to be the model train guy creating the world as he wish it was in his basement. <laughs> and that well, was I, it. That, that truly, that joke did come from, I've been buying a lot of RC cars, and it's just me tinkering, being like a, a micro mechanic with RC cars in the garage. The thing about remote control cars in 2020, as I understand it, is that you buy the different pieces and put them together. And then when the cars crash, you fix them rather yeah. than what I imagine, which is like you go to Radio Shack and you buy yourself a Tandy Bigfoot. No. Or the no, one where the claws come out of the wheels. I don't yes, remember what good that one was called. Though. Quality <laughs> reference though. Thank you. Uh, no, that's well, that's the joy of it is I'm 43 and I missed the uh, I missed everything about tech. Now, I missed the moment that I could have jumped on board and been like, all right, I'm going to learn even the basics of just computer storage or any kind of common sense that goes with technology. Um, and I didn't, I never had office jobs where you kind of learned by default of like, oh, if I save something, it goes into a file and it goes, it goes here. I missed all of that. I think I was in maybe first grade or something. And God forbid I got put in a, the gifted class, which what, what a way to handicap your child at an early age by <laughs> elevating their, uh, slightly more curious nature than the other kids by taking them out of the practical classes and then giving them gifted classes. So I got to go to a computer class in first grade, which is just, we just like would type a coordinate in 
every lunch break. And then at the end of two weeks, you pressed enter and it made a circle. And I was like, I don't care. And I, <laughs> so I just ignored logo. it. Yeah. I, was like, I just ignored it. And now it's like, oh boy, I really should have stayed on that path. <laughs> I really could have, could have helped me out. That program, the the box that it came in on the back, there was like a picture of the ultimate aspirational product of that little turtle wandering around. And it was, uh, you could uh, have a triangle square picture of a sailboat. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you did that. I'm like, I didn't do anything. I sat here pressing buttons and pressed enter. I'm like, I could have been out playing in the dirt with my friends. So the cars, the cars, they break. I fix them. There's a sense of accomplishment there. Even No matter how small... There's a sense of real world accomplishment with I, which I think is kind of lacking in like comedy's great. I love comedy. I'm gonna do comedy forever. And you tell jokes and people laugh, but like I didn't do anything. <laughs> I just, as I've said before, I'm just capitalizing on a personality trait. That's all comedians are doing. It's the physicality of it, like the fact that it is an actual object that you've repaired, rather yeah. than the eph- ephemerality of making people laugh. You know, even something just the next step up of home repair past fixing a light bulb where there's a step two involved in the process. I sit back and I'm like, yeah, all right. Good for you. Look what you did. That sink was leaking. It's not leaking anymore. You did that. You should probably maybe maybe you're a plumber now. Like I I kind of need that stuff. And this whole being at home and just tinkering with different things and like, oh, this is broken. We moved this house as a broken lawnmower in it. That's going to be my project, getting a lawnmower to work. And I understand every retiree that I've ever met that just sits in the garage pulling things apart and putting them back together. I drove past the model train store in Burbank. Actually, I think there may be two model train stores in Burbank. Oh, I know the one you're talking about. Model train capital of Southern California. And um, (laughs) I was looking at it and I was thinking of, there's a model train club that meets at uh, Travel Town, which is a, a train museum in Griffith Park here in Los Angeles. And sometimes if you take your two-year-old to Travel Town on a Saturday, you wander past the little window into their workshop, and it's just all these 70-year-old men, you know, working on the on the tracks. And, and it reminds me of once uh, Mark Marin told me that he likes to cook at parties because it's a great way to be the center of attention without talking to anyone. Yeah, <laughs> and I think of like this the model train club. It's like the perfect club to join if you want to connect with others without having to talk to them. <laughs> it's not connection. It's it's just vicinity. <laughs> everyone, there's like eight people in this room, and everyone, they're like they're all on the same page as far as what's going on, but everyone's just working on their little junction. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, a it's a vicinity club. There's no socializing. It's yeah. just you could be in a physical room with somebody. Also, that I know that that train store you're talking about, if you go because they the they are very elaborate setups. Yeah. Uh the creating the mountains. You could spend, you know, okay, this month I'm gonna design this one square foot and hand paint all the characters. And I go on Instagram. There's a there's this place called Miniature World. It's in German. It's 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 in Germany, and the the site's in German. But that's all they do. They just create Miniature World. There's a there's a odd level of horniness involved. <laughs> if you go to that one in Burbank and you look around, 
You look around, they're big dioramas and they're big. There might be a different term for the train setup. I call them dioramas. And you like walk around and look into the woods. We're like, oh, they just put some trees over here. And then there's like a little tent and there's two naked people just having their way with nature in there. And like a guy put that there. This is a model train store. Yet if you look hard enough, there's a there's a little naked Easter egg. And then I then I went to other because I'll go to hobby shops and you could just buy little naked people. Wow. Like that's one of the things you could purchase are little naked people to put in your not for like, hey, you could paint it like it's got molded clothes on. They're just nude. There's a type of model train person that I imagine, and they're the kind of people who invented modern computers, right? Like all modern computers were invented by these dudes at the MIT Model Train Club who wanted better <laughs> ways to control their trains, right? In 1957 or whatever. Yeah. And God bless them. But there's another group, and I think of a friend I had in college named Dan, still my friend, and he was known as the guy who could use his one hair paintbrush to change the number on your driver's license so you could get into clubs when you mm -hmm. weren't 21. Uh, which, you know, if there's young people listening, you know, don't, don't do that unless you're just trying to go see Del the Funky Homo Sapien at the Catalyst and they won't let you in otherwise. Uh, and, and like the, the personality trait that I have never been able to generate is someone who is artistic but careful. <laughs> that combination, <laughs> I have never taken care in anything that I've ever done in my life. I just can't muster the focus to do anything like painting a miniature. And one of the things about building model trains is that it is about taking extraordinary care and control as well. Just as you said with your, with your remote control cars, like I think having a, having something with discrete boundaries that you have control over in an uncontrollable world. Yeah. It's, th this is, this is entirely within, yeah, within your control. You're the boss. That, I never had it either. The idea of, you know, I liked drawing as a kid and then eventually like, well, if you like drawing, maybe you'll take art classes. And as soon as we got to any kind of painting where you would have to wait for something to dry, I was like, life's short. Let's go, man. <laughs> Like watercolor, I would always be like, I can get close enough and not let the colors bleed together. And everything I painted was just a, a dreary sunset. Just <laughs> a and an oil paint. Yeah, like everything I did, like I never had the patience to wait it out. And so I am in awe of the people that could sit there like, today I just I just paint three figurines. That's all I do. And then they sit there and they dry and I have tea on my porch. And that's my life. And, oh, I'm, I'm close to that now, even though it took a uh, global collapse to, <laughs> to force me into this kind of patient, semi-retired lifestyle. Even more with the hilarious Kyle Kinane still to come. What has being a former punk musician taught him about being a stand-up? A lot about humility, says Kyle. More on that after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Rodney Carmichael, and on this episode of Louder Than a Riot, did bias against rap lyrics seal the fate of No Limits Mac Phipps? 
this guy shouldn't be incarcerated. And I know that his music got him incarcerated, but they got the wrong guy. Listen now to the Louder Than a Riot podcast from NPR Music. Hi, I'm Jackie Cation. Hi, I'm Lori Kilmartin. And we have a podcast called The Jackie and Lori Show. Who are you, Lori Kilmartin? Oh, my God. So much pressure. Uh, I'm a stand-up. I've been doing stand-up since 1987. Uh, I'm a writer for Conan. I've written a couple books, have a couple CDs out, have a special out. Who are you, Jackie? Well, I, too, am a stand-up comic since 1984. And uh, I do the road like a maniac and uh, don't have a cool writing job, but I have four albums out working on a new album. We talk about stand-up. We talk about uh, all the different parts of stand-up comedy. So that's the Jackie and Lori show, and you should subscribe on Maximum Fun if you want to hear that. (laughs) And I would encourage you not to. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the stand-up comedian Kyle Kinane. He's got a new record out. It's called Trampoline in a Ditch. Let's get back into our conversation. One of the big themes on your new record is coming to terms with middle age, essentially. And I think your public persona, because of your distinctive voice, best known as the voice of Comedy Central, of course. Ah, previous, previously. (laughs) Previous host, voice of Comedy Central. Because of your distinctive voice and your big beard and your jean jackets and your talking about shower <laughs> drinking, you you kind of built you built a gilded cage for yourself publicly as as like uh, the original punk rock party dude. Mm-hmm. And this record, I think, is is largely about you coming to terms with what that means in the context of being in your early forties rather than your mid twenties. Part of that was strategic. Like, I don't want to live that. Well, you know, I'm going to have my fun how I have my fun. And it still involves having some drinks, but now it's not having drinks and screaming and yelling. It's like I'm sitting in a yard with a stray cat by a fire pit. (laughs) And that's, that's okay. It was also, I didn't want to just be, you know, I didn't want to be that one note as a comedian. And I didn't want, because... It was also like uh, self-preservation and career preservation because I feel like there's only so much you can laugh at somebody whose routine is all about like, aren't I a crazy party animal? And eventually that gets – that's a sad thing when someone's old. I'm already past the age where that's acceptable in most circles. But I think hopefully the stories have been funny enough that they're still engaging. But – I can't, I I don't, I would feel bad if I'm still like, oh man, you guys, I got so wasted the other night. And people would be like, you're, you're, you're halfway to the end of your life. Maybe slow it down. Like I would rather, I don't want to be this guy that is, uh, it, it sounds sad when you keep doing those stories. And it's also one note. I would like to be like, you know, show people that I have more facets to my existence than just that. And I feel that's also a challenge as a comedian is to be like, well, maybe don't rely on the things you know people will laugh at. Try and get, try and challenge the audience as much as you as you challenge yourself by exploring new topics. And I see so many other comics that are afraid to lose this core audience they've built up. But that core audience, in my head, they'll get bored if it's the same thing over and over again. I'd rather have a smaller amount of people 
be constantly curious with what I might come up with as life progresses versus a large audience that dwindles all the way away because like, oh, he's just going to talk about being drunk again, you know? Earlier in your life, when you were a young man, you were in a band, uh, not a famous band, but a band that <laughs> that worked a little. And, you know, when you're a punk rock guy, especially as a young man, that can be a huge part of your identity to almost all of your identity. To what extent do you still think of yourself that way? And what does it mean to you as a 42-year-old? Uh, well, 43 now since the album was recorded, but before the world collapsed. Um, right. So 42 when the album was recorded and 79 now. Back, oh man, back when, back when, baby, let me tell you. I think some of the, at the time, the ethos of punk rock, not that the uh, mid 90s punk scene was as much ethos based as your like late 70s or uh, you know, mid eighties type was, but yeah, it was, it was, it was the look and it was the attitude and it was the, you know, no future party all the time. Who cares? There's no such thing as shame. There's no such thing as embarrassment. And, uh, basically just being obnoxious was that that was the, what was at the time. But there's that weird irony of, of punk rock, how it was all about like the welcome everybody thing, but then it still had its own clicks within it, but that's every scene. But it definitely, I looked at that more as, you know, some kids, their personality got built up because of being on a sports team. They they learned the idea of teamwork. And maybe they use that positively. Maybe they use that negatively of like, uh, you know, oh, we're, we're, a, we're like a gang. But other people are like, no, I'm going to get into this office job or any kind of job and realize how to build up different individuals and praise their strengths and get things done as a team. And that's, you know, that's the wisdom that only comes with years is to be able to look back and go like, oh, these were values I were I was adopting without realizing it. I also think it did push me into uh, pursuing comedy only because comedy was kind of viewed at, I mean, we're thinking like the mid nineties, I, I didn't know how stand up comedy started and it was always kind of, I always loved it from a childhood, like, like seeing Comics on Johnny Carson. That's how I would see it. My mom would let me stay up late. And I didn't understand how one person could just stand like he they weren't actors and they weren't sports stars, yet they were on the show. They weren't musicians. All they did was stand there and talk. And that's that's all they had to do. I'm like, I can do that. I, especially playing in playing music. I'm like, I know I'm not good at this. I had fun because I was playing in a band with my friends. And we had a good time. But I was like, oh, you know, the individualism with uh, punk rock of like, yeah, who cares what anybody thinks? Do your own thing. I had to go against punk rock because punk rock thought stand-up comedy was silly. Like, oh, you're going to stand up there and make people laugh on purpose? Just do it between songs. I'm like, yeah, but it's kind of different when it's uh, stand-up. So I had to to apply the uh, principles of punk rock to to lead myself astray from punk rock and try stand-up comedy in 99 when everybody thought that was like the corniest thing you could be doing. So it will, it does eat itself eventually. That's what I learned about punk rock ideals. They do eat themselves. My friend, John Roderick, who is mostly a podcaster now, but Mm -hmm. was a 
is and was a musician for a long time and is a was a, a Gen Xer who fell into the beginnings of the indie rock scene in Seattle where he's from in the you know 20 years ago he wrote this piece for the Seattle alternative newspaper that I think was called against punk rock mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know he's the uh, the kind of guy who could write that kind of piece both because he's a, a charming blowhard and because he's enormous yeah. um just like a very physically powerful man <laughs> um and rhetorically powerful as well and you know so many people w- with punk rock backgrounds got upset at him and i think not unreasonably but i found the whole thing as a not a punk rock guy myself very interesting and informative from both perspectives because I saw what Roderick had to say, which was that especially the punk that he had seen as a, you know, as a kid in the beginnings of punk was so built around anger and contempt. Mm -hmm. And it's not a sustainable way to live your life. And it's, you know, rarely a productive way to live your life. But I also saw, I also saw, you know, many of my peers when I was a teenager and, um, you know, folks I knew from the arts community far beyond just making punk music, whose lives had been informed by being punk rockers because they learned how to be in an artistic community and believe in something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and in a way like care for others. I guess that's what being in a community is. But I could really see both of those things. And I, I was glad that that conversation happened because it was something that, you know, when you're 17 or 20, you can just rush headlong through picking up an ethos. <laughs> yeah. And when you're 35, I think it's worthwhile to think about what of this still has consequence and meaning for me and what's still, what's still valuable for me. Um, well, I'd say some of it was, I mean, yeah, when you're, you know, yeah, 17 to 25, or whatever the age range, especially speaking for myself, being from the suburbs, like there was no element of survival. Everybody was going to be fine no matter what you did. So it wasn't like, oh, I need this sense of team or the sense of community. I did make lifelong friends in it. But my, my thing was, I, you know, I always liked to point out the hypocrisy and stuff. Like that's, you know, that makes me, and it, boy, does that make me just a delightful party guest is to be like, <laughs> oh, but what about this? Uh, the problem with punk rock is it never, it, it loved pointing out the hypocrisy everywhere else, except in its, in its own scene. It's like, you know, burn down, burn down all the churches, except for your own, you know, <laughs> which is, I always thought was kind of ridiculous that like, we make fun of everything because we don't care, but oh man, say something bad, say something bad about the Ramones and see what people have to say. <laughs> So it did teach me a, a more, I don't want to say cynical, but especially in comedy, it, it helped with like just trying to find hypocrisy in, in any sort of argument because it, it, it led me to like, oh, I have to find the hypocrisy in my own beliefs. It's, I mean, it's a simple like high school debate tactic is argue for the side that you're against because either you'll just be you'll prove yourself correct even more for your what, what stance you're taking, or you'll become more open-minded and go, oh, I didn't think of it this way until I, until I tried to argue 
against myself on a subject. One of, one of the reasons I'm sure I'm incorrect by saying I don't go to therapy and I don't think I need it is because I analyze everything I do with, from both sides so much from from a right from a, a creative standpoint to come up with comedy, but also like I come to conclusions about myself. Like, oh hey, remember how you felt this way for so long, Kyle? And it turns out you're kind of full of. Ah, well, that's from uh, sitting in your room and having arguing both sides of a debate in your own mind. And that came from uh, a lot of the punk rock, like, well, we hate institutions and we're going to, this is going to be all DIY. And then I get angry. I'd see people that would do DIY because they didn't want to deal with institutions. But then I saw people that were DIY and it's just because what they were doing was bad and nobody wanted to help them. That's why they were doing it themselves. (laughs) That informed my comedy because I'm like, all right. I'm only going to, I'm never going to ask to be on someone's show. I'm only going to just do as well as I can on the show that I'm performing on and have somebody ask me because that's going to be my quality control. And that I learned from all these DIY, like, oh, we booked our own tour and nobody showed up. It's like, yeah, what's because your band sucks and you keep doing this every year and the numbers are getting smaller and maybe you need to be a little more, you know, introspective as to why this is happening. Did somebody ask you to go on tour or did you just book your own tour? So I kind of looked at the fail. I always look at the failures and try to learn from those in music in comedy. Like why did that person fail? All right. I'll just avoid that. Why somebody successful. I, you can't control those things. But you can avoid pitfalls. Kyle, there's a fleeting moment in your new record where you say, uh, and I guess we probably have to bleep this on the radio anyway, um, <laughs> where you say that there was a there was a there was a moment when being a comedian was cool, and then some people had to take their out. Yeah, and. <laughs> I wonder what your experience was of having a few of your peers in comedy uh, who were, you know, straight dudes mm-hmm. deal with the consequences of being a, being a, a doing bad person stuff in a way that I guess maybe they just hadn't expected they would ever have to do. Some of, some of these things were heinous. Uh, <clears throat> crimes. Some of it was like, I think, and this isn't in any way a defense, but you're taking these people that like, oh, I'm, you know, life of the party. And you build somebody up as the life of the party and center of attention. And there, th- th- there's this sense of infallibility that comes along with it, with any kind of stardom. You know, and it's, I'm sure this, uh, sadly enough, this behavior exists with professional athletes. I'm sure that behavior exists, you know, within entertainment. I think it exists anywhere with power and money involved. I mean, you see it with executives and CEOs and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know why the focus uh, was on comedians. I mean, the focus should be on anybody who's doing that stuff because it's wrong, but to watch comedians and be like, Oh, this guy did that. It's like, a lot of times it it's, hasn't been unbelievable. I've had no – I just know I'm in it. I understand what it can do to someone's personality, If there's even if there's already a, a, a fraction of that attitude in there. 
And again, I, I you know, people like that, they're center of attention. Ah, I'm wild and crazy. Oh, this guy's wild and crazy. They're getting celebrated for being wild and crazy, not to uh, put any darkness on uh, Steve Martin's routine. But, uh, the, you know, oh, all this guy's stories are about being nuts. And oh, look at we, we're all laughing at his crazy stories. And like when somebody laughs at your crazy story, it also equates to a level of acceptance. I mean, that's what I've used. Like I've, I'll say horrible things that I've done or been privy to that are usually about myself. But if somebody laughs, it's like, oh, if you're laughing, it means you've, you're not judging me. You know, if you tell, if you tell a very uh, self-deprecating story and somebody laughs along with you, you feel better about it. Cause like, oh, even though I look like a fool in this, I'm laughing at myself. Somebody else is laughing at me. Maybe it wasn't so bad. And so that leads into, like I was saying before, well, now maybe I can just do this stuff because people laugh at me talking about, oh, oh boy, I'm nuts. I do crazy stuff. They know who I am. And it leads to this sense of infallibility, possibly. You lose an idea of decency, I think, when every night is just drinks and partying. <laughs> Where's your... Where's your moral center? Like it was, it was musicians, it was it was athletes, uh, it's comedians. There's scumbags everywhere. I was I was sad to find out things that I did not like finding out about people that I had known. But I think ultimately, and then you know, then I went through many other emotions, anger among them, certainly. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I feel like I was relieved to feel like maybe I was living in a world with consequence. Yeah. I was like, and, and I was like, I, if, if you find out you're living in a world with consequence and, and your reaction is purely defensive, then, you know, I wish you had found out, found that out a a long time ago (laughs) because, (laughs) you know, we should all deal with the consequences of our actions. It's yeah, it's more upsetting when it's a, the the surprise. I mean, there are certain scenes like where, you know, some of these guys. I'm like, oh yeah, it was kind of a a click or a scene where I never had any proof or knew about it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Like, oh yeah, over there. like, and again, it goes back to the punk rock thing of like, well, but we're on the right side, right? And then you find out you're not. Well, it means you really got to do some introspection and analyze the the team that you're playing for just as much as you're being outwardly critical. Well, Kyle, thanks for coming on Bullseye again. Uh, and thanks for this great record. It's it's really hilarious. Oh, uh, thanks, Jesse. Kyle Kinane, his new stand-up album, Trampoline in a Ditch, is one of his funniest yet. You can stream it or buy it pretty much everywhere. He's also hosting a podcast these days called The Boogie Monster. In it, he and fellow comedian Dave Stone talk about cryptids, curses, and other supernatural mysteries just in time for Halloween. If you're looking for something spooky, Kyle's one of the funniest folks out there. Check out his work. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where my daughter deemed our backyard balance beam not high enough. So I went on a popular e-commerce website and ordered a higher balance beam. Can't go anywhere. 2020. 
The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can keep up with the show on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.